Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. That's a good uh, uh, Jim Carrey movie, The Truman Show. Uh, hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Coffee Talks with Mike. Good to be with you, figuratively speaking. I was thinking the other day how cool it would be. I mean, like, okay, cool if it's me, right? But anyone, think about how cursive... I can't believe, uh, yeah, you know what? We can't believe that the episode is going to start in this bizarre place. That's okay. Think about how cursive people are talking about, oh my goodness, no one's learning cursive anymore. This is so strange. Like we're going to have to have cursive experts eventually so that they can interpret and and decipher people's old journals, right? Like, oh, we got to read Benjamin Franklin's journals to like, you know, learn history, historians, yada, yada. And because of technology, there might be a time when people are now just not going through journals so much, but going through podcasts and going through all of this digital content and the videos where it's no longer like, it's not going to be as much work. I, I suppose it will be in one sense, but in another sense, because of technology, you're there's going to be historians 50 years from now doing research projects on so-and-so from 2015 and they're just going to be going through their social media profiles trying to pick up different things that happened and stick it on a timeline and then they're going to go well what did they really think about such and such and they're not just going to listen to that person's podcast they're going to listen to all the times they were guests on other people's podcasts i'm just thinking like man you know it, it for me it'd be like I wish I could hear C.S. Lewis have conversations, you know, over a podcast microphone, but maybe I don't, right? And I know we talked about this a few episodes ago, um, as I was just talking about, like, kind of the the infinite content issue, where, like, because everyone can create content, now there's always content, you'll never get through it all. And maybe that waters down the thought and power of, a particular thing. So maybe I'm talking myself out of my own scenario, but I, I was just reflecting in general and it wasn't some deep, long reflection. It was just kind of cool of like, man, if I'm fortunate enough one day to have kids and grandkids and great grandkids, you know, how many generations, this is a sad reflection. It's humbling in one sense to dust. We came from, from dust. We came to dust. We would return. There's some point in your family line where no matter how good of a person you were, loved by your spouse, your children, your parents, you'll be forgotten. You'll just be a name on the family tree, right? You might have like these beautiful historical artifacts from your family's history um, that connects you to your great-great-grandparents, and you might have a photo of them, and you might have a diary or two or something, but more often than not, you're just going to hear stories. That's how we pass down the important things. But now with technology, there's a scenario in which you can see your great-great-grandparents on a video 50 years after they pass. That's weird, isn't it? I mean, it's a, it's amazing, but it's weird because we've never had that before, right? Like I, we've had home videos and we've had like, you know, my dad every Christmas would have the uh, camcorder out with the little tapes. And, you know, I look forward one day to, to stumbling upon those. And um, even uh, when we were in, um, 
when after 9-11 happened, my dad was in the Marines. He went into the reserves. And so um, th- this story will make sense in a broader context in a minute. But we would do family dinners together and we got a little tape recorder and we would just record dinner like and then I think every week or maybe every few weeks, my mom would send these tapes over to my dad. And it w- there was nothing in there other than here's what's going on. Here's what we're doing. Here's life. And I-, I can't wait to listen to some of those tapes and just hear, you know, this artifact. Like we've stumbled upon it. God forbid, like aliens find it or something. You know? And they're like, oh, this must be what humans were. And it's just me and my siblings bickering about something from 15 years ago, you know. Um but that stuff's so interesting and it's like scary the way that technology connects us, but it's beautiful in another sense, right? Because now there is a way in which I could see a scenario where let's just say I have great, great, great descendants and one of my great, great grandchildren stumble upon these podcasts one day, which I'd probably be embarrassed about by the end of my life, but whatever. And they go, wow. My great great grandfather Mike, he really never knew how to just get to the point. You know, you know what I mean? Like there could be just uh, some fascinating ways in which we connect and we're going to continue to see that unfold as technology develops more and more. So it's a uh, an interesting thing to reflect on. I don't know. Spend some time thinking about it. Now that you have the technology, what are the kinds of things you'd like to say to people? I don't know. So that has really almost nothing to do with today. Um, I I just got back from our high school breakfast, uh, so I'm I'm kind of jazzed up. And then I I usually don't drink coffee at those because it's at like six something in the morning, and I'm like I just want to wake up. But I was already so energized and wired. I was like I'm just gonna get a coffee now, which now I'm like I'm even more energized and wired. So I'm probably gonna crash hard. But I was like, you know what? Let's record the episode. And it'd be hilarious if the episode records me crashing hard. So we'll see what happens. Today, I want to do a sermon deep dive on the sermon I did on Sunday, because it is the perfect case study of why I like to do these sermon deep dive episodes. Um, Reason being, there are so many things. Man, if we were in a church where I could talk for an hour, it would have been awesome. Because there's so many amazing things about this passage, um, fascinating things for scholars to look at, um, I think fascinating things for the way that we think about our faith, but there's just not enough time. And also, as I take a sip of coffee, also, I, as much as I say I'd like to have an hour, I don't know that it would lend itself in the same way. Yeah, I don't think it would lend itself in the same way in the format of a sermon. Maybe I'll do an, a whole episode about this at some point, um, just different forms of talking. I've probably rambled about this here and there in different places, but there's a difference between preaching a text and teaching a text. So like I just started our C.S. Lewis series at our church on the great divorce. I'm really stoked about it. Um, uh, I think they're going to be putting videos out of that. So if that's for sure, I will uh, tell you that if that's something of interest, because I I won't be able to do whole episodes on this podcast about the great divorce because you really got to understand some of the context of the broader story. I I probably could do one or two and maybe I will. But if you want to kind of read along and then watch those videos, that could be a cool way to engage with the book. 
not cool necessarily because I'm teaching it. I don't mean it that way, but to have someone to bounce ideas off of essentially. Um, but point being that class this uh Bible study, essentially, even though we're not studying the Bible, Lewis is not the Bible. Um, but that class is an hour long. Uh, and I went an hour and six minutes and I could have gone for an hour and 30 easily. There's something different about the context of where we sit when we learn and how we learn and how we receive it. And I think now if you're in a church where the culture is just, yeah, sermons are 45 minutes long. That's what you do. Then you don't think anything of it until you go to churches that are shorter than that. And you go, man, that church was short. That was, I mean, it's kind of nice to be out early, but did we do enough? And then the question of like, well, how much is enough comes up and it's like, okay, well, the broader question, right? Like those are symptoms of a deeper thing. I think the deeper question is, what is the point of the worship service? And I think often in the West, in particular, we think the point is to go learn something during the sermon. But is that the highest form of worship? And Jesus said, love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The sermon is the mind category. It might influence the heart category. And maybe it even overflows and influences the soul. And then it goes, makes you do something with your body. But we know a sermon, it's a primarily intellectual exercise. Is that the most important part of the service? Why isn't our confession portion? And and I'm in a confessional church, right? So maybe you don't go to a church that's confessional, but why isn't our confessional portion, like prayer of confession, why isn't that like 12 minutes long? I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of things we could be confessing. Or how about the you know, the time that we, we, we call this portion of prayers of the people, why isn't that really long? Like, we can pray for a couple of things, but why would we not pray for 15 minutes long? Why would we not pray for the earthquake, you know, in Turkey and Syria for 15 minutes straight, rather than just for a 10 second mentioning it in a five minute prayer? So th- there are just so many components like that. And as I think about like this sermon I preached on Sunday on Mark 6, which is the feeding of 5,000. There are so many things that I would have loved to weave together into this sermon, but then it gets to a point of like, are you overloading the mind? Because you can only remember so much. And I think in the age, oh, look, this is going to connect beautifully. Oh, I didn't even plan this, I swear. In the age of technology, because everything's recorded and everything can be re-experienced, we create content, even sermons, with the intention of people going to listen again, rather than there being a more natural experience of like, you walk out of church and go, man, that impacted me. Let's go talk about it. And then a week later, you can still remember kind of the, the gist or the the major moves of the sermon. But if it's an hour long, you're not going to remember all six points or 12 points or every like video interjection of the sermon. And so I I don't know. I I think there's just a lot there. Um, So that's a lot of buildup to say, I'm excited to talk to you guys about Mark six today. And I am really sorry, but I didn't hit my timer uh, to see how long I've been going so far. So uh, we're going to ballpark it. I'm really going to try to keep it not short. <laughs> Have I ever done it short? 
uh, but shorter, short enough, whatever. Um, so, uh, and one last thing about the great divorce, it's going to be five weeks, great divorce by Lewis. It's fascinating. If I had to pitch the book to you, it's a book about desire. What do we truly desire? And if you if you want to get kind of a, a broader picture of that, episodes 11, 12, and 13 of this podcast are about the weight of glory, a famous sermon Lewis preached, and it deals with the same kind of question. Um, it, and the weight of glory, it's one of the most beautiful things I think Lewis has written. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. It's the kind of thing I think you should reread and reread and reread and pray over and reflect on. Um, but in the weight of glory, Lewis is talking about the secret thread that connects all of our longings in life. And he talks about how, you know, even though we love music, there's always been the echo of a tune we've never heard that we can't wait to hear. And we've tasted the greatest foods, but it just tells us there's this other great food out there that we've been longing for. And even in our most loving relationships that make us swell up, we know that there's some other thing we're longing for. And it's not that any of those individual things are bad. They're all beautiful and good. The book of James says every good and perfect gift comes from the, from above, from the Father of lights. They're good, perfect gifts. But they point us to the true thing we're longing for. And so um, that's what The Weight of Glory talks about. I think The Great Divorce, the book that we're doing, which is kind of about heaven and hell and the afterlife. It's an exposition, exploration of what do we long for and what do we settle for in pursuit of that longing. Um, the tough thing about ever preaching, teaching, etc., is every time you're done, there's always things you wish you could add back. You're like, let me get that one back. And that's, I said a lot of different ways I would summarize the gist of the book yesterday in our first lesson together, but that's one amendment I would make. It's what are we longing for? Lewis's contention would be God, heaven, etc. But I think the book explores what are the things we settle for as our final answer. And of course, you can imagine if you settle for anything that's not God, then you have settled for something far less, in, infinitely less significant. And the way Lewis puts it is that if we love these things properly, then they will have all along been part of heaven. But if we love them more than God, and these things, I mean anything, if we love anything more than God, more than the, the relationship and the longing we were built for, then they become dumb idols tell you what it's a quick book I, I maybe you all should get it maybe you all should tune in we're doing it over zoom i don't know it's 130 140 pages but it's a tiny little you know big margins kind of deal it's a great book for lent it is it's a book i reread every year for myself because it's so important and it's a book that forces you to reflect and i told our group yesterday it's a book that will make you uncomfortable not just because Lewis is hard to understand sometimes, that's fine. It's a book that makes you uncomfortable because it explores 
things that you probably love incorrectly in your life. You might not like Lewis and what he says about certain things. You might just disagree fundamentally, and that's okay too. It's a book that forces you to wrestle with the questions, well, is there something wrong? Is it disordered? Oh, man. This, this episode is not about the great divorce. Uh, it's like I'm doing ads on my own podcast for other things. This episode is brought to you by Mike Kramer's Other Thing. All right, we're going to move on to Mark chapter 6. All right, let me give you the gist of Mark chapter 6. And in fact, I'm not going to do all of Mark's... Well, I guess I can give you the whole gist of Mark chapter 6. So my sermon on Sunday was on the tail end of Mark 6, which is where I'm going to spend the time today as well. So the beginning of Mark chapter 6, you know, well, really, we got to go to Mark chapter 5. I'll just read you some of the headings. Jesus heals a man possessed by demons. This is chapter five. Okay. That goes on for a bit. And then Jesus restores to life and uh, a girl and he heals a woman. That happens at the end of chapter five. Chapter six picks up after Jesus has done these things, he's rejected in Nazareth. Where's Jesus from? Nazareth. This is where that famous line of prophets are, um, are not without honor except in their hometown or um, a prophet's not accepted in his own hometown, et cetera, et cetera. Then Jesus gives a mission to the 12. He sends them out in groups of two by two, giving them you know, authority to cast out demons and heal people and preach and all these things. And then there's this weird interlude of the death of John the Baptist. And it's this, I, I don't know if you ever knew this or, or what, but it's this episode where like King Herod had heard of Jesus's name and but there was still this tension with John the Baptist and others were confused. Were, were they Elijah? Like what, what's going on here? And they had arrested John the Baptist. And as they're trying to figure out what to do with him, Herod like throws some kind of party or something um, on a birthday or a banquet. Uh, yeah, this is chapter six, verse 22. When his daughter came in and danced, um, he asked her, you know, ask or told her, ask me anything you wish and I'll give it to you. And she said, give me John's head. And so he beheaded him. And it was just like this very morbid, bizarre story that interjects in the middle of this chapter. Um, and so verse 29, I'm sorry to chuckle about it. it. It's just, it's because in the other gospels, it is talked about. But here's how it goes. Um, uh, verse 27, immediately the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison. And then he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And then the girl gave it to her mother. Verse 29, when his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Okay, so like all this happens with John. It's like a, a historical anecdote perhaps to like help date some of this stuff. It's like, all right, John was beheaded and then John's followers came and got his body so that they could, you know, deal with it. And then verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. What do you mean all they'd done and taught about John? No, has nothing to do with John. We got to go back up from verse 30 doo -doo 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 -doo, up to verse verses six through 13. So we're skipping 14 to 29. So G remember, Jesus sent the disciples out and said, go cast out spirits and preach and heal people and all that. It's almost like 
Verses 14 to 29 didn't happen. They're like, all right, well, anyways. So then the apostles came back to Jesus and then told him about everything that had happened uh, that they'd been doing. So it's a fascinating um, thing that I'm not going to go into today that, well, probably not on this podcast. Never say never, but uh, that Herod story is really interesting. And Jesus's response to John the Baptist's ministry in the other gospels, very interesting. Our topic today is uh, some of the other stuff going on in verses 30 down to 44, uh, which is the feeding of the 5,000. Now, um, uh, we'll get to that in a second. So uh, the first part of this that I would have loved to spend more time on um, is the beginning message Jesus has for them, which is in verse 31. They had just told him everything they'd done and taught. And Jesus' response in verse six, chapter 6, verse 31, he said to them, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And in the sermon, I mentioned that line. I say, if you hear nothing else today, recognize that you are commanded to rest. You're, you are. That's part of of our faith. It's part of what we talk about when we say Sabbath. It, it's not just you need to earn a rest. It's just part of the human design. We need to rest. You can't burn the candle at both ends. Um, and anecdotally, what was so interesting about this, I had a great conversation as per usual with my dear friend, uh, Elizabeth, the other day, and we were talking about I'm running, as most of you know, I'm training for this marathon and like injuries just keep popping up. Little injuries turn into more serious and then less serious and then more and then less. And um, I was talking about like there's this tension when you get injured, right? Because you got to first discern, am I injured seriously or is this more of a, uh, it's uncomfortable, but you got to push through it and your body will bounce back on its own. You got to give it a little tough love so it can heal itself. But then if it is a real injury, the best thing you can do is to stop running or whatever you know sport you're doing so that you can dedicate time to recovery, to getting better, to getting stronger so that you can go do the thing better later. And she mentioned this, um, this kind of little mantra that she has uh, with her daughter, uh, which is sharpen your ax. And it came from this idea she couldn't figure out where it was from initially um, but she was saying, you got to sharpen your ax. And it's the idea if you're out sawing down trees all day, and then by the end of the day or even midday sometimes, you won't be able to, your, your ax is going to become more dull. So it's going to take way more effort and energy to cut down those trees. Uh, so you got to go. The smartest thing you can do in that moment is to stop and then go resharpen your ax. And it's going to take time. It's going to take you time away from the thing, this task of cutting down trees. But in reality, if you go and you sharpen your axe and you come back to the trees, you're going to make up all of that time and some, and it's going to take less effort and energy and you're going to feel way better in the end. And so she's saying like, sometimes they say back and forth, sharpen your axe, sharpen your axe. And she was like, yeah, like we've been saying this for a bit, but then she realized that it was from the Bible. And so she was like, I can't find the thing. I can't find the thing. And she finally found it in this uh, devotional she had 
Uh, and so this this is from Ecclesiastes 10.10. If an axe is dull and one doesn't sharpen it first, then one must exert more force. It is profitable to be skillful and wise. That's from the Common English Bible. Pretty on the nose there, right? It's profitable to be skillful and wise. We know that in businesses, uh, not cut corners. If you do things right and you do them skillfully and with wisdom, you're going to make more profit, right? Sometimes doing things the right way, there's a reason we say it's the right way. Uh, and the fact that it uses that that parable of the axe being dull is beautiful. But what's awesome is that the passage to read for that day is Mark 6, 30 through 34, which is about resting a while because you're so busy that you just need a moment to rest. And she sent me that after I already had this passage picked. Yeah, it was just cool. It all came together. So now I'm sharing it with you. So Jesus says uh, they had no time, no leisure even to eat, and they went away in a boat to a deserted place by themselves. Okay, now we're really going to rest. No. Now, many of them saw them going and recognized them, and they hurried there on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. So they're trying to get away so that they can rest. And as they're going to rest, people saw them and they scurried around so they could meet them before they got there. And as he went ashore, this is Jesus, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. That's the little passage from the devotional that Elizabeth sent me. Um, and I, I would have, that, that's a sermon on its own. That's 10 sermons on its own, truly, about the importance of rest. The importance of resting amidst fatigue uh, when you can't get a break. I think of parents and the amount of jokes I hear about, you know, they'd finally gotten a moment to sit on the couch after a long day and the kids find them. And it's like, well, let's do the next thing. You're like, please, I just want to nap. I just want to relax. Okay, we're going to go again. I mean, hear this language again. For many were coming and going, and the disciples had no leisure even to eat. How many times have you been so busy in your day that you felt like you didn't have time to eat? What is that? I mean, think about how much time it takes to actually cut out time to eat. If you pack a lunch, which I often don't, I'm lazy but I also live close enough that it's okay. But if you pack a lunch, it takes you five, 10 minutes to eat. You telling me you're so busy, you can't make five minutes, 10 minutes to eat. And I know many of you are like, yeah, that's how crazy life gets sometimes. Well, recognize it's not just because of technology. It's not just because it's the 2020s. It's This was happening in the early church that the disciples were doing ministry and there were so many people coming and going that they didn't even have time to eat. God take time to rest. So the the story goes on. When it goes late, the disciples wanted to kick the people out because they couldn't afford to feed them all. Uh, and Jesus says, "Give them something to eat: the loaves, the fish." A fascinating, miraculous moment. You know, multiply the the fish and the bread, which is. I realize when I read scripture, sometimes I am underwhelmed by miracles. And it's not because I don't believe that they happened. I think that I believe it so... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? 
I I don't know what the word is. So how about this? I have no issue believing any of these miracles that they almost don't impress me, which is bad, right? Because the whole point of it being miracles that like God does this miraculous thing, but then I'm like, well, it's God. Yeah, that's what God does. God do be doing miracles. Uh, I heard this um, famous speaker, preacher, teacher, um, Tom Long, do this thing in our church a few years ago. And he basically just said, um, if you believe in the incarnation, you already believe in the most amazing, ridiculous miracle of all. And if you believe in that, and you struggle with the other miracles of scripture, oh, there's an alarm. If you believe in the incarnation, but not the other miracles of scripture, you have to really think about what the incarnation is. It, God becoming flesh. I mean, is there something more miraculous than that? And if God is God, and now God's amongst us, is there a miracle that couldn't happen? The answer should be no. And so sometimes when I read these stories, I'm less interested in the actual miracle and more interested in the surrounding details, surrounding reactions, etc. And I think it makes sense. I can logic my way into that position, but I do strive, like I'm striving to try and take a step back and bask in some of those miracles. So maybe that resonates with you. Maybe it doesn't, but something I've been realizing. But the gist of this is that Jesus gives them uh, all this bread and fish. And then in the end, it says, verse 42, all ate and were filled or were satisfied. And there were 12 extra baskets full of fish and bread. Um, and those who had eaten the loaves numbered 5,000 men. Um, and so after this, they go into a boat and they're going to Bethsaida. Other stuff starts happening. Oh, there's the yawn. Woo! Crashing. Told you. So, my sermon, the gist of it, was really a focus on the idea that Jesus saw these people, and even though everyone was tired, he saw them and had compassion because he, he viewed them as sheep without a shepherd. So, we'll spend a little time thinking about sheep without a shepherd. Boom. And as he had the compassion, it led him to teach them. It says, Jesus started teaching them a great many things. So he was trying to give them some shepherding, some guidance, the compassion through the form of teaching. He's trying to meet their needs through this teaching. And then eventually there was a physical need for food. And Jesus satisfies that too. But it's not like the people were following Jesus and the disciples around because they thought they were going to get a free meal. Now, maybe there was someone there that thought that. But I mean, the reality is that became an after effect, even for the disciples. It wasn't until it grew late and they went, we really need to get these people out of here so they can go eat dinner. We can't handle that. I mean, what are we going to spend 200 denarii, like a, a year's salary on paying for everyone's food. We don't have that. And then Jesus says, you feed them. Go and see what we've got. The point being, Jesus saw a need in these people, but it wasn't a physical need at the time. He saw a spiritual need and he met it. And then he also saw a physical need and he also met that. So I tried to make the 
the distinction between the two, and I focused on the former, the, the spiritual need. But I also gave a nod. I was like, this is not like a, an attempt to get all metaphorical to get out of the physical need. Jesus spends his time in the New Testament meeting the physical needs of people around him all of his ministry. He heals the blind, raises the dead, feeds the hungry. Matthew 25, separating sheep and goats, he says, we need to be feeding the hungry. We need to be giving uh, drinks to those that are thirsty, visiting those that are in, in prison, clothing those that are naked. Like this is, Jesus's ministry is a a tangible ministry, but it's not just tangible. It's not just the physical realm. It's not just meeting physical needs. He's meeting spiritual needs. He talks about hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And so when Jesus sees them and has compassion for them, because they're sheep without a shepherd, and he begins teaching, he knows they're looking for something. And he starts to try and meet that something, that need of something. And so the sermon was all about what are you looking for? You know, many of those people were in a period of looking, like they're following. And that was normal. Like you'd follow teachers around and you'd listen because you were captivated by the things that they said and the way that they thought. Like, maybe if I listen long enough, I will learn something. Maybe I'll learn the very thing I've been hoping for. And it was kind of cool like this. I didn't think about it initially, but as I was doing the the great divorce lesson yesterday, when and the whole gist of that book, in my opinion, is about what are the things we're longing for? And what things do we think we're longing for? What things do we settle for? My question in the sermon was, what are the things you're settling for? What are the things you're, what do you want most right now? And do you think that's really the thing that you need? Or is it the thing you're settling for? Now, basically, I've spent 35 minutes talking about random things and the great divorce and rehashing my sermon. So let me actually pivot here and say some of the stuff I really would have loved to have addressed. One, I already, I did already speak about the rest stuff. But the parallels here to the Old Testament are very significant, very. One, well, I guess it, it really all of them have to do with Moses. So Jesus begins his ministry, and then this is the first major miracle. Oh, I guess there are other miracles, but the way that the structure of the book, it's kind of hard to get into um, without hours of time but the structure of the book really sets up this being this transitional moment in the way that the narrative happens. And it's Jesus feeding these people in the desert place. And that should light some kind of alarm in our brains, when I, when, at least when we point to it. Um, desert place, people following a leader, people getting fed when they're hungry. Who else did that? Moses leading the Israelites. Where? Through the desert. Where to? To the promised land. And they were hungry. And they were groaning. And Moses talks to God and they get manna from heaven. Jesus sees these people as sheep without a shepherd. Moses was called to be the leader of Israel, trying to lead them. And they questioned him at every turn. Where are you taking us? And there were days when Moses said things to the effect of, we don't know, we're just going. Jesus is leading these people. He sees them, has compassion, and he feeds them spiritually because they weren't hungry for food initially. They weren't groaning. 
you know, we hear the disciples in this exchange asking questions, groaning, frustrated. You never hear the dialogue of the people. It doesn't say, and then the people began to grumble because they were hungry because it was so late at night. It's the disciples. Now, the disciples are, it's the Mary Martha principle. They're being good hosts. They're being good um, uh, leaders of an event. I mean, how many events have you put on where you try to think of the needs of all the people that are in attendance? Like, I don't think that they're necessarily in the wrong here. They just weren't completely aware of who it is they were working with, the Messiah and the miracles possible. And neither were the people. There's no like grandiose reaction from the people like, oh my goodness, this guy just multiplied bread and fish. Like he must be God. Maybe they didn't see it. We don't really know exactly how that happened, but there's no reaction, right? So there's this parallel, a significant parallel of Jesus and Moses here from the Old Testament of feeding these people. Now think about that story of manna. It's a time when the the deal with the manna was that if the manna fell from heaven, you were only allowed to take up enough for that day. You weren't allowed to like go get a bunch of extra stuff and store it at your house. That was a big no-no. And part of it was trusting that God would continue to provide for you each day. Now, we parallel now to the New Testament, and a big part of this transitionary period of of kind of um, uh, legitimizing, that's a word I want, Jesus's ministry for the people is drawing these clear connections between the Old Testament and Jesus and the prophecies in Jesus and these ministries in Jesus. That's why in Matthew, there's so much work done which scholars presume was uh, written for the Jewish audience to connect Jesus to these prophecies, to connect Jesus to these laws from the Old Testament. See, this is what we were already talking about. This is why Jesus said X, Y, Z. He's the one. And in the same way, we're looking at this story that helps us see some of these connections to Moses, which on the surface we might not notice, but when people have the realization that, hmm, we just followed this guy out into the desert and he gave us some teaching Ten Commandments. And as we were learning some things, we got hungry and then he fed us. And so in this passage, you know, you might think it's just a logistical detail down here in verse 39, but it's another nod. Jesus ordered them, the disciples, to get all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. And they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And this is a nod back to those moments in the desert with Moses. Jesus takes the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and blessed the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before all the people. He divided the fish among them too. The blessing of the food is crucial and it's Jesus blessing it. It's not asking for a blessing. He's blessing it. We're seeing this pivot in the ministry that's showing Jesus is setting things up to say, there were things that were done before. I'm going to show you how they're supposed to be done, right? Didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. This is where when we talk about that line in um, the the Lord's Prayer, which we typically all read the same version of it because the other versions are shorter, not as beautiful. Um, but we say, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors or our, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. First line, give us this day our daily bread. 
We're talking about this. We're talking about manna. We're talking about the trust that God will give us enough for this day, regardless of what we go through this day. That everything we need will be cared for. And then you think of the other things Jesus says. He points out the lilies in the field. Does not God love you more than that? And he talks about the birds. Does not God care for you more than the birds? Yeah, you need some fish and loaves. God's going to take care of that too. And so when we name that in our in the Lord's Prayer and we pray the prayer Jesus taught us to pray, Jesus doesn't say, say these exact words. He's teaching us how to pray. But at the very least, saying those exact words, we know that it teaches us a rhythm to the prayer. And learning the rhythm of praying for our daily bread, it should nod us back to manna, but it should give us nods back to this moment too. Not just physical needs. Not just, Jesus, I need bread today because my stomach is hungry. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But Jesus, there are other things that my my heart needs today, my soul needs today. I, I need to trust you with that. And it's not a, it's not like a vain hope. It's a confidence. Give us this day our daily bread. It's, it's trusting that God is going to meet us where we are. And Jesus in, in so many ways is the new Moses. It's why in the transfiguration, which characters were present? Oh yeah. Who was one of those people? Moses. It's important to recognize that Jesus has has taken what began in this long history of his people to show us where it's going, to show us how things were supposed to be. We we see these nods that we often miss because we're just reading in the newer places, right? Oh yeah, he went ashore. There was a crowd. And of course he had compassion. He's Jesus. He is compassion and he's the shepherd and they're like sheep. What's it mean to be a sheep without a shepherd? Well, you're a sheep that wanders. I mean, sheep are dumb. There are a lot of funny videos on the internet of sheep falling into holes and sheep doing stupid things. That's why a shepherd's staff has a hook at the end of it. Because sometimes they got to hook that sheep's neck to pull them back from danger even. But a sheep without a shepherd is wandering into the darkest of situations. Jesus sees people wandering off and he has compassion for them. He's compassion for us. And he begins to teach us many things. And I don't think that means that Jesus is like, all right, well, I'm going to give you the hardest battle of your life. I don't think that's necessarily what it means. I think it's just... Jesus sees us in the situations we're in and has compassion for us and is reaching out to us. Going back to some of the Lewis language, there's a secret thread of longing and desire in us. And those longings and desires are a taste of the true object we're seeking, the true thing we were made for. The words of Lewis elsewhere, this is mere Christianity, if nothing in the world seems to be able to satisfy the longing in me, then clearly I was made for another world. That it doesn't matter how much money, how much status, how much, you know, how many relationships you have, how many material things, how many homes, how many vacations. 
you do get or take, none of that will satisfy. Usually, if we have the wrong mindset, the more that we get, the more that we want. It's a sad reality because many people get to the end of that and they continue to expand that timeline. Well, I just got to work hard the next three years to get the promotion. Okay, I just got to work hard. And then finally, it's I got to work hard until retirement. And after that, well, I got to manage my money right so it's good after retirement. You do all the things you're supposed to do that you were told to do because it's going to make you feel financially free or it's going to make you feel independent or it's going to make sure that you didn't waste any time on earth because you got to see all the things. And often people's response is, is this it? I thought there was going to be more. I thought I'd feel better. I thought I'd feel more peaceful. I thought I'd feel something. And it's because those things aren't bad in and of themselves. They're just not the things we were made for. They're a taste of it. The freedom you crave, that's a taste of the freedom we have in Christ. The longing you have to feel accepted and validated and valued by your friends, by your boss, by your family, those are important. It's important to feel valued but it's a taste of the value we crave in our identity in the divine as image bearers. The things that we want, the security, peace, it's a taste of what true security and peace in God are like. The ecstatic joy in us when we hear beautiful music or are inspired by beautiful art we see or, or stories that we can't help but keep rereading or listening to because they just move us and we can't even put it into words. It's a taste of the true things we long for. And Jesus sees us as sheep without a shepherd and has compassion for us because we are like the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. We left one dark situation. We left slavery in Egypt, right? And we're in this liminal in-between space to go to the thing we were made for, the promised land, but we're wandering. And in the Israelites' case, they were wandering and they began to follow Moses reluctantly. And Moses is an imperfect man. And Moses leads them and he tries to be faithful and he is a faithful leader, but he's not perfect. And they eventually get to that promised land. And once they get there, they continue to fall short. They continue to miss the mark. They continue to have these disordered desires. It ends up being their own worst enemy. And Jesus comes on the scene and sees people that are wandering, searching for something. And he sees them, has compassion for them, and he feeds them spiritually, teaching them. But then also says, hey, as you're trying to figure out this spiritual stuff, you're going to have some physical needs too. And we're going to take care of that as well. Now, throw a wrench in all of this. Not really a wrench, but just an important reality check is that there's a, a privilege to reading this text as someone that doesn't struggle with survival um, details. That's not the best way to put it, but you'll know what I mean in a moment. There's a book called, um, shoot, where is that thing? 
I will clarify the book's title in a moment. Let me let me stumble upon this real quick. Um, no shot. I can't find this book. Ha ha! I got it. Um, so smart. I've got like not a photographic memory, but uh, I was like I could picture it in that other area. It's this book called By Bread Alone and the subtitle The Bible Through the Eyes of the Hungry. And it's actually a collection of essays. Um, can't recall if I did an episode on this or if I maybe just referenced it again before. But the whole point of the book in these 10 different essays is reading stories like this one through the eyes of hungry people. And the reality is for the majority of us, if you're listening to a podcast right now, you're probably not in a seriously food insecure setting in your life. Not trying to make that assumption of everyone, but the reality is that most people in the world, in the, or I should say the um, United States, et cetera, don't struggle with these things in the same way. Um, and even that's not a really precise way of putting it. Most of us who have the luxury to take time to go think about intellectual um pontifications are not worried if we're going to find our next meal. Usually, if you are truly struggling to find food, the number one priority is to find food. Why? Because you have a deeply physical need upon which survival depends. And when we read stories like this, and we read other stories, uh, and uh, maybe I'll do a follow-up episode because I'm seeing the sixth chapter in this book is from Mark 6.37, um, and it says, uh, you give them something to eat beyond a hermeneutics or interpretation of hunger. Uh, so maybe I'll check that out. But there are a number of stories in this book that are about food and seeing these food stories through the eyes of the hungry. Um, here's a little uh, blurb from the back of the book. Important ecclesiastical documents or church documents have stressed the urgency of addressing world hunger and put in the foreground its natural and historical causes from famine to global austerity measures and welfare. Here, biblical scholars examine passages from the Old and New Testaments exploring the dynamics of hunger and its causation in ancient Israel and the Greco-Roman world and revealing the centrality of hunger concerns to the Bible. My point in nodding to this book, um, which now I feel like I have to do episodes on, uh, but the point of pointing that is that Jesus is talking about spiritual needs, but he the miracle is in meeting the physical needs. The miracle we remember anyways. But anytime Jesus meets us spiritually, it's a miracle. Anytime we have that, that realization, it's a miracle. But we can't just settle for ourselves being taken care of. Sometimes there's just this survivalist mentality. It's like, well, if I survive, then it's all good. It's not a crisis anymore. Or once you have family, if me and my family survive, then crisis averted. So no, no, no. We are called to go out and feed those that are hungry and to give drinks to those that are thirsty and to put clothes on those that are naked and to visit those that are in, in prison. Like this is part of our calling. 
And Jesus says, when you do this to the least of these, you do it to me. And when you don't do it to the least of these, you have not done it for me. This is Matthew 25, one of the hardest parts of scripture to read. And you can't read passages like this without connecting it to passages like that. The reality is the miracle of being fed for most of us is not a miracle that is so deeply important because we could just go get food somewhere else. I'm going to go get a bite to eat for lunch. So it's not this dramatic, powerful thing other than, whoa, he multiplied that bread. That's a miracle. Think about on the simplest level, if you hadn't had food for a long time and someone made food out of thin air, that miracle means something else entirely. But it's it's in two parts here. It's a physical and spiritual miracle that Jesus is performing here in this text. And in the midst of people searching for something, Jesus meets them, has compassion for them, and is trying to help them see the thing they're searching for. But even though they haven't had some dramatic spiritual realization, Jesus still meets the physical need. And so I just want to caution against the idea of like just letting these passages be fascinating podcast topics and not let them sink down into the way that we try to, um, I don't know, shift our own lifestyles in regards to the physical dynamic. So, yeah, um, got a little off track in the beginning, but I think I tied it all up <laughs> accidentally. Um, there's a lot to be made of the Moses-Jesus connection in this passage, the idea of daily bread, um, some of the specifics of the uh, groups of 50s and 100s in the pastures. But on the simplest level, we can talk about the connection of Moses leading Israel through the wilderness to the promised land. And now Jesus comes on the scene in the early parts of his ministry, leading these people through a desert place and trying to meet their spiritual needs and meeting their physical needs, giving them that daily bread kind of thing again. Because this is a part, not only for the people listening, but for the disciples. When the, when the miracle is done, there's an overflow of 12 baskets and scholars make a lot out of this. There's a lot of different ways that you can spin it. To the very least, it's the idea that all of their baskets were full. That when you truly trust God to fill you up, you can't fill it the way that God fills it. That the satisfaction, that verse 42, that all ate and were filled or all ate and were satisfied and all ate and had all they could have wanted, depending on the translation you read, that's something you only get when you allow God to fill up that basket. But if you search for that to be filled in other things from other places, it'll never truly satisfy the disciples that were stressed out about how could we possibly care for these people and feed these people, those 12 full baskets were a reminder, not only can we feed them all, we're going to have excess. Because when you find your joy, meaning, satisfaction in Christ, it's more than you could have asked for, more than you could have imagined. And so that's the challenge to myself 
right now as I'm going through Lent, time of repentance, reflection, and then The Great Divorce by Lewis has been a fun um, exercise for me to be able to teach, but it's it's a book that forces you to grapple with repentance and reflection, to ask the very question, what am I hoping will satisfy me? What do I desire? And am I settling for something less than what God has for us? Um, and I invite you to to wrestle with those challenges too. Reflect, especially now in the season of Lent, on what things are keeping you from drawing closer, what things are you settling for, um, rather than pursuing that God has in store for you. So that's it for this episode. Just under an hour. Did my best. Um, got a little stumbled looking for that book, but I got it. I got it. Um, so looking forward to chatting with you all again soon. And uh, I will keep you up to date on things going on. The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. That is all. So go in peace. <laughs>